Good morning, everybody online. See you there. So I hope that, that we're having this potluck next week. I, I hope that some of you who have been watching us online will, will come on out, bring like a meal or something, you know, bring something to share, because like, it'd be great to see you in person. You know, even those of you who like live in far distant lands like West Virginia, you know, you could come, you could come and have a meal with, with the church. It, it's possible. Just a thought, just a thought. Good morning, everybody. Please turn with me to the book of John, chapter 15. Um, hey, uh, well, here's another cool announcement. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, so, yeah, Good Friday, April 15th. Please come out for the 6 p.m. service. We are really, really, really excited to welcome. We're actually going to have another congregation join us. We're going to be joined uh, for Good Friday service and Easter service, but um, for, with, uh, um, we're going to be joined by Rise City Church. Uh, Rise City was uh, planted by Luke Casagrande, who was, uh, who's preached here uh, a couple of times at, at New Hope, and he was on staff at uh, Grace Fellowship, the, the church that, that planted us, our mother church. Um, and they're a small church in Owings Mills, and they're just getting going. Um, they've they've uh, just actually met a few times, and uh, they, don't, they don't have uh, uh, the place where they meet. They meet in a school wasn't available for him on Friday, for Good Friday, and so I was having uh, breakfast with, with Luke a couple of months ago, and we just, we just started talking about, well, what if we just did Good Friday and Easter together? And he was like, that would be great. So um, Luke's actually going to preach on Good Friday, really looking forward. He's a, he's a be prepared. He's a powerful preacher, really going to be great. Um, and then Easter Sunday, we're going to uh, uh, join together as well. So um, just uh, really looking forward to that. We're honored um, because I think that I think Jesus really is uh, honored when we do things together and partner with other churches. Um, really looking forward to that. So, moving on. Um, in one of Jesus' more familiar verses last week, we heard him say that greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. We, we talked about that word resurrectional, that phrase, resurrectional cruciformity that I'm sure has been on, the, on your lips all week long. You, you, you just love that, that word, that phrase, resurrectional cruciformity, the shape of the Christian life is empowered. Uh, the, the Christian life is empowered. It is, it is enlivened by the truth of the resurrection, but it is in the shape of the cross. It's in the shape of the sacrificial service that we get to, to give to this broken world. Um, this is all the more powerful when we consider that just a few verses later, Jesus makes this point. He said that those greater love has no one that they would lay down their life for their friends. And then Jesus makes this point to tell the disciples that, that he no longer wants to refer to them as servants. He wanted to call them now friends. And he's about to lay down his life for his friends. They are disciples and and, and, there won't, um, and they won't stop being disciples, right? There's still going to be a lot of work to do as these men who are very much unprepared to take over this mission do so by the power of God. They are students. They're not going to stop being students. They, they still have a lot to learn about continuing God's mission of incarnation. Jesus is Lord and Savior and Redeemer, but here on the eve of the cross, he wanted to define their relationship Jesus now makes a point to say that they are his friends. So right away, that's a, that's a point of application for us here this morning, right? I hope that you came here this morning to spend intentional time uh, with the living God, to worship the living God. But I also hope that you came here this morning to spend intentional time with your friend, Jesus, alongside other friends. 
Jesus tells us to abide in his love. We are to make our home in his love. We are to make, our, make his love our foundation, the source from which our entire life flows like the vine, like the true vine. May we continue to make New Hope Community Church a place where we can all hear the good news that Jesus desires to be our friend. And now, moving on in our series, God in Our Midst, The Upper Room, we, we pick up in, in John 15, 18, with a, with a section where Jesus kind of hits a different tone. After telling the disciples to prioritize love for one another, then Jesus, he turns the corner, he pivots, and he says this. In verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Wow. I mean, that's a little harsh, isn't it? I mean, one minute we're talking, we're in the love nest and we're washing each other's feet, and we're talking about the vine and the bearing the fruit and the loving one another, and come on, people now, smile on your brother. And now, the world's hating us? And who's the world, by the way? Because didn't we read back in John 3, 16 that God, like, loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to save it? Is this the same world that's going to hate us? Why would they hate us in response for God loving it? Well, let's back up a bit and cover a few items. First of all, let's look at the word hate. It kind of jumps off the page, right? The word, the word does just basically mean hate or, or detest, but you know, the commentaries, they, they, they point out that, that in John, it might not carry quite the same connotation, or quite, quite the same stigma as our, as our modern uh, usage of the word. Like, in a way, in, in our usage, when we use the word hate, we've both intensified the word associating it with, just, justly, associating it with racism and sexism and genocide and violence and all kinds of other horrible things, you know, uh, we've defined hate that way. And then we've also kind of desensitized the word when we say things like, I hate Diet Coke, which I do. But here in this passage, Jesus is simply saying that the disciples will face opposition in what they are about to do and they should remember that the, word, the world opposed him during his earthly ministry. Jesus was repeatedly challenged by religious authorities from both the left and the right. The Pharisees, for instance, challenged Jesus for what they saw as a loosening of the law, and they attacked him from the right. On the other hand, the Sadducees denied some of the more superficial elements, like the resurrection, and they attacked Jesus from the left. And just like today... Jesus isn't interested in sitting in either a conservative or a liberal framework, not a framework of theology or a framework of politics for that matter. No, Jesus was always interested in doing the will of the Father, and we should be as well. When Jesus refers to the world, he's likely referring to world systems, philosophies, worldviews, camps of intellectual understanding. At times, Christians can fit nicely into the agenda of a particular system, but most of the time, other times, they will be in utter opposition to a prevailing system. Most of the time, the truth, actually, the truth is that most of the time, it'll be a mix of the two, which does think, make things difficult. Here's an example. 
Jesus' words did forecast an ongoing persecution that would take place at the hands of the Romans for several centuries after his earthly ministry. The persecution, this persecution was on and off, mostly on, until the early 300s, when the emperor Constantine made Christianity legal. Under future emperors, Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire, but until that time, Christians did face opposition. The primary point of contention was that Rome desired that all would bow a knee to the emperor as Lord. They even called him Savior. For the most part, Rome understood that the various regions they conquered had their own gods and their own religious traditions. They, They just wanted to make sure that the people's primary allegiance, your number one god, everybody, is Caesar. You can worship your own gods, that's okay with Caesar, but let's be clear, Caesar is Lord. And that worked pretty well for just about everyone. There was really only two groups of people for whom that didn't work, Jews and Christians. For them, fundamental to their monotheistic belief system was the understanding that there was only one God. And they were strictly told to obey their law that said that they were to have no other gods before him. So for Christians, if Jesus is Lord, then that means that Caesar isn't. That was, of course, the point of the severe opposition between Christians and Rome, and it led to the slaughter of thousands. That martyrdom did lead many to come to the faith, though. It seemed that for every one person the Romans executed, five more took their place. But on the other hand, Christians weren't living like in direct opposition to Caesar in the Roman Empire. Rome didn't often want to listen, but the truth is that that Christians actually wrote letters to, to officials. They said Christians would have been fine praying for the emperor. They just didn't want to pray to him. So paying taxes and being good citizens and living at peace with those in the wider community was within bounds of their faith. In fact, the Christian community, just like today, hoped to be a positive influence on society, not just at the expense just, just not at the expense of idolatry. All of this means that there would have been times when Jesus' followers were welcomed and other times when they were not. Christianity didn't fit nicely into any man-created world system. It still doesn't. And this would eventually lead to opposition, or to use the word that Jesus used, hate. Jesus said these words hours before being betrayed and denied by his own disciples, uh, arrested by his Jewish brethren, and then crucified on a Roman cross. He knew something about hate. And as we just discussed, the church would face similar persecution in the centuries to come. But once Christianity was legalized, though, it got organized, and then the persecuted were given power. And the heartbreaking tragedy is that it didn't take long for the persecuted to become the persecutors. In 16.2, Jesus says, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. For over a thousand years, Christians have far too often ignored Jesus' command, his very clear command to love one another. They're gonna, the world's going to know who you are, guys, by the love that you have for one another. He, they, we have ignored that command and instead killed each other in his name or at least spewed hate-filled rhetoric 
at each other in the name of politics or religion or theology. There's much more that can be said about that. This isn't a history lesson as much as I would like it to be. I think for us this morning, we need to remember that the opposition we face from the world, the hate that we experience, is not license. It's not license to respond accordingly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says very clearly, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, because who else would be doing that, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son. I love that. That that was something I I saw this week. That I've read that verse thousands of times. Thousands, I don't know, whatever. Um, I've read it a lot. And I've never noticed that before. For, and I looked up the Greek, and actually does say that. For he makes his son, not the son, he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This sovereign God is the one who is ultimately on the throne. We see in Deuteronomy and Romans that vengeance is God's business, not ours. According to Jesus, our call is to respond to hate with love. And that's not going to be easy. Jesus said, I've, I've, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And that when the hour comes, you might remember what I told you. You see, we can be disappointed in the world's opposition, but we shouldn't be surprised. The truth is that you can't faithfully walk the path of Jesus without eventually making someone angry. It might seem at first like love and joy and peace would be, oh, that'd be embraced by all. Who would have a problem with love and joy and peace? But then you actually start living out, living it out, and you realize that it's not as natural to the world as you might have thought it was. You encounter peer pressure and you encounter anger from others when your convictions lead you to not go along in the crowd. And some days it feels like everybody is moving in one direction and you have to say, no, I'm not going in that direction anymore. Still, our call is to not, you know, give the finger to the crowd or something like that and, 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 or throw rocks at them or something like that. Our, our call is to respond with, with loving kindness. This call can be followed on all levels, but let's be honest, it's far easier to face the sort of persecution that most of us experience on a daily basis compared to the way that Christians are treated right now today in other parts of the world. When I think about the opposition that I experience as a part of my faith, I find it difficult to even put it in the category of persecution or even hate. It's more like microaggression, sarcastic comments, maybe mild mockery that's usually over quickly. More than that, those comments are very rarely based on an accurate understanding of the Christian faith or Jesus. Instead, they're usually either based in ignorance, meaning they really don't understand what they're opposing, Or they're criticizing things that I would criticize too. Things like the abuse of power or the use of like scare, uh, uh, turn or burn scare tactics or something like that. If I hear someone say something like, you know, ah, Joe, he's just a do-gooder following Jesus or something like that and and I'll get invited to certain kind of parties, I'll pay that price. That kind of rolls off my back. But, oh, when I hear someone mock Jesus out of a place of either pure ignorance Uh, or criticize the church for doing something that I find repulsive as well, well, it feels different. It hurts in a different way. 
But it also, I think it, in, a, in a peculiar way, yeah, it does hurt a little bit more, but it also, it also helps me to extend more grace. You know, sometimes we respond to opposition with attacks of our own. Other times, other times we respond with retreat. Uh, verse 16.1, uh, 16, chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Well, what does falling away look like? Well, it could look like the loss of your own faith. You know, if everybody else is mocking Christianity or deconstructing faith, I might as well follow the crowd. After all, they're making some good points. Or we retreat to a private faith that is kept separate from the watching world. You know, we say, if Christianity makes others uncomfortable, I might as well hide my faith away and make it something that's only for, for maybe me or maybe my family. I'd never bring it up at, at work or at school or Thanksgiving dinner because it could cause disruption. So I'll just keep my faith nice and safe in this box called my heart. And no one feels like I'm imposing my beliefs on them. Here's the problem with that, friends. Um, God has called us to a personal faith. He has never called us to a private one. God, the gospel means good news. The word gospel means good news. The implication is that it needs to be communicated to the larger world. If you've never, ever, ever felt opposition to the world, of the world, that might be a sign that you've been living a faith that's a little too private. Make no mistake, we are called to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. In fact, the word, uh, the, the etymology of the word martyr comes from the word meaning witness. The martyrs were to bear witness to their faith and they accepted the consequences of hate and opposition. But I mean, that's, that's a hard, hard call, right? How do we do that? How do we both stand our ground, stand for our convictions in, in Christ, stand our ground in faith, but also do so in a way that is loving to this world? I mean, for starters, we don't respond to hate with hate. One of the many problems with hate is that it is very contagious. On the cross is where we, on the, on the cross is where we hear Jesus say the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even while experiencing mocking torture, Jesus is concerned with forgiveness and compassion and the consideration of others. Can we say the same? When someone makes that biting comment, is your first response, how can I hit back? When someone makes a comment that is clearly out of ignorance, do you respond with patience and grace, or are you just interested in winning the argument? When someone makes a legitimate criticism of how the church and how the power is abused by the church in this world, are you agreeing where you agree? Jesus tells us that we are to love others the way that we'd want to be loved. And I don't know about you, but if someone needed to communicate something vitally important to me, like the gospel is a vitally important truth that needs to be communicated, something that I might, something that I was like predisposed not to want to hear, I would hope that they'd be patient with me. I hope that they would factor in the possibility that there is there, a reason why I've been hesitant to learn this information before, and that they would be interested in earning my trust before they told me I needed a course correction. Again, that's not easy, but we're not alone. We have help. In the midst of these words on hate and persecution, 
Jesus, again, he brings up the plan for him to return to the Father. It's to our advantage that he returns to the Father. And for another advocate to be present with the disciples as they do the work of spreading the gospel. Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit, and the word he uses is paraclete, parakletos, uh, like para, meaning alongside, and, and, and clate coming from um, the word meaning to call. So the helper or the advocate, the paraclete, comes, is called to come alongside us as we face the, the difficulties of this world. He takes us by the hand, and he guides us in the way of truth, as we just prayed a few minutes ago. The message translates Jesus' words this way. When the helper comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. That righteousness comes from above, where, where I am with the Father, out of their sight and control. And that judgment takes place as the ruler of this godless world is brought to trial and convicted. So what's going on there? Jesus is saying that as the Holy Spirit moves in this world, he'll expose the world system for for what they are. The, The fundamental problem with the world is that it doesn't understand, it doesn't recognize the work of its creator, and doesn't recognize Jesus as king. What's worse, evil has spread across the world, and the sad truth is, is that we have participated in the spread of that evil by our own sin. But Jesus is saying we have an advocate with the Father, one who will come alongside us as we navigate the evils of this world. He will guide us. He will compel us to follow the path of love and joy and peace, even in the face of opposition. And he will sanctify us with the blood of Christ in order that we might now boldly approach the eternal throne of God. Knowing that we have such an advocate is the truth that drives us to walk a very narrow path. Our call is to put love into this world, to make our home, to abide in God's love, even when the world will respond in hate. Still, you know, the world won't always hate us. In fact, I think it usually doesn't if we're doing the things we're supposed to do. I mean, we remember Jesus, our sinners loved Jesus. When we read the Gospels, we see repeated examples of men and women coming to Jesus with their baggage. They bring their pain. They bring their suffering. They bring the truth that they are broken individuals in need of help. And while Jesus never minimizes our sin, he does redeem it. He tells us to stand and sin no more, to walk now a path of righteousness that may not be of this world but it is most definitely for this world. This world that God so loves. This opposition we face is exactly the kind of thing we would expect from a world that needs a Savior. We need to not only accept opposition, we need to expect it. Our job is to respond not with bitterness and complaining, but instead with grace and mercy and patience and kindness. And those aren't just, by the way, those aren't just like pie-in-the-sky, unattainable ideals, you know, like, oh, you know, grace and mercy and patience and kindness. Those are things we teach kindergartners, but they're really not the things that actually we're supposed to do in the real world. Jesus blows that out of the water. These are not 
just unattainable ideals. These are skills. These are virtues that mark a follower of Jesus Christ. They are skills that can be developed. They are skills that can be strengthened. And knowing that we have such an advocate as the Holy Spirit, our call is to get in the spiritual gym and do the work. So two final truths, friends. Number one, God isn't finished with you. He desires that you would be transformed by the renewal of all you are, mind, body, spirit, and heart. What choices are you making right now to follow that path of discipleship, to confess your sins and instead repent, meaning to repent actually is a directional word. It means literally to walk in a different direction, to grow in the virtues of patience and gentleness and self-control. If, if you're like, if you're in the gym and you're, and you're like, oh, this is arm day, it's like maybe some days you're like, this is patience day, right? Like, you know, this is leg day. Well, maybe today, this, this is self-control day. This is a day where I need to be focusing on, on gentleness or I need to be focusing on kindness. I need to put rhythms in my life that, that aren't just unattainable ideals, they're actual skills. I'm going to practice kindness. I'm going to practice generosity. I'm going to practice goodness. So number one, God is not finished with you. Number two, God isn't finished with the world. In, in the face of hate and opposition, even violence, he is calling us to stop being surprised and start being faithful. God loves this world even when it hates him. And he's calling us to do the same. He's calling us to build for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. To spread the gospel. To proclaim the name of Jesus in, in, in word and deed. And we are called to love this world. Yes, I'll say it again in resurrectional cruciformity. We pray for us. Oh, Lord, help us to, to know this path better. Help us to hear your voice. Lord, there's so much noise. There's so much noise that is competing for, the, for your voice in our lives. Help us to, to live into the rhythms that are hearing your voice. Help us to live into the rhythms of prayer and fasting and the study of Scripture and all of the spiritual disciplines that will help us build these skills, help us to build these virtues of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Lord, we desire to be your community. Help us as a community, help us as the family of New Hope Community Church to be a place that, in, that, that's, that, that holds those virtues in such high regard that they proclaim your, your name to a watching world. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.